0: This is Chapter 40 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. What lengths would you go to to protect your child? We'll hear the riveting true-life story of one father and the steps he took to keep his teenage daughter from falling into the hands of an online predator. Then we travel to some of the weirdest and far-flung corners of the globe with one of the co-authors of Atlas Obscura. A few years ago, Mackenzie Baldwin was ready to abandon her family, friends and hometown of Plano, Texas to marry a man she met online but had never met in person. But then her father, John, got wind of her plans and set out to stop her. Their riveting story is detailed in Almost Gone, which is told from both of their viewpoints. Father and daughter, along with the rest of the Baldwin family, recently visited our studios and spoke with our Michael Wallace.
1: Well, Mackenzie, let's start with you. Obviously, this is uh, you know mostly your story. Your dad talks a lot; writes a lot in the book too. Um, how did this all get started? I mean, you're a you're you're a double major in college. You're a, you're a smart. You were a smart kid, right?
2: It just started very innocently at first. Just a couple minutes a week. Just a friendly Facebook um, friend at first. Um, and then over those 14 months, it would turn into hours and hours a day that we would be talking. Um, you know he started doing things um like telling me that my family wasn't good for me, my friends weren't good for me, and um ultimately started questioning my religion, which at first i didn't um, take any notice to I, I just kind of shrugged off that stuff, but um, through some tactics and um, his timing, he was able to get me to start believing him and um, so ultimately I did I separated from my friend's family and I and I changed religions and um, I only had him after a while I only wanted him I only cared about him and I only really listened to him.
1: I mean he was uh, and as the FBI later would tell you, there are a lot of guys like this they really know what they're doing I mean this is a this is a operation absolutely yeah. John, how did you first find out about it? Some some friends
3: of Mackenzie's uh, stepped up. Yes, I was um, actually on a business trip, and I got a, um, a phone call from—it's actually a text message from a friend of mine who asked me to give him a ring. And I called him, and uh, when he got on the phone with me, he, he was very hesitant and what, and trying to tell me something, but couldn't find the words. Uh, when he finally did, uh, he said. I, I don't know how else to tell you other than just tell you straight up. McKenzie's involved in a online relationship with a guy overseas, and uh, she's planning to marry him, and she's planning to leave as early as two weeks.
1: But you had sensed something was going on for a while.
3: Well, we knew that we knew that something was happening. Uh, you know, she we had seen changes in her personality, uh, things that she had always been interested in, she was no longer interested in uh, friends that. W- came to the house a lot and were had always been, a, a a very common presence. We're, we're no longer there. Um, you know, we knew of course the, you know, our, uh, you know, her religious uh, views had changed quite a lot too. And, uh, so that was a, you know, that was a, a stressor for the family as well. So this has been going on for 12 or 14 months and we, uh, so we knew something was happening. We had, uh, Really, just resolved that we were just going to love her where she is and um, didn't really understand what was behind it. But we just trusted that, uh, you know, the time would tell. uh, But we never dreamed it was anything like that. Yeah. So, who's
1: your first call to when you figure out what's going on here or you have an
3: idea? (laughs) Um, My first call, well, you know, it took me a little while. I, I had to collect myself a little bit. And, but my first call was to Stephanie, my wife. And, uh, and when we got together, we, you know, we just decided first, we, you know, it's just we were shocked about, you know, the thing, first thing that came to mind to us is is when, when this came to light was that we had been viewed this whole year as rebellion, and, and we were just waiting for it to ride out. And what we learned on that phone call was that she was a victim, and that she was being manipulated, and she was in a lot of danger. So when I called Stephanie... Uh, we talked about that, and we had to do two things. We had to stop her from leaving, and we had to be secret about that because she had she had threatened to leave right away if, if we had got wind of it. And second, we had to find a way to stop her desire to leave. She wanted to go. So being 18, it was just going to be a matter of time before she found a way out. We might could stop her once. We might could stop her twice. But unless we got in front of what was uh, you know, making her want to go – then uh you know it was just going to be a matter of time and so we just put we had to put together a plan uh to first stop her from leaving and then address the second question we didn't know how we we're going to do that mm-hmm. yet
1: john you call it a rebellion uh did you just think for a while there that this was just teenage girl stuff you know they all separate from their i mean i got teens at home i'm Mm -hmm. going through it right now you know they don't talk to you anymore they they don't want to hang out with you you're not cool did you just think that's what it was or as time went on you realized maybe it was something more serious
3: well you know for the first uh for the first few months uh i really was just uh really upset about the whole religion thing and i was making that a big deal uh and uh and we it's core to our family beliefs, and and this is a, you know pretty far departure from what we grew up in the south you know as as christians um but when when i realized though and i had a, we went to a family counselor to to get a different perspective because what uh, after 3 or 4 months of of going around just talking about that it was pretty clear that what we were doing weren't going to work <laughs> that wasn't going anywhere we had to try something different so we went to a counselor and when we uh, and that counselor told me two things. First, you're making this a lot more about you than than her, and uh, she was right about that. And second, uh, she goes, I, I really think that uh, you know she's 18. Um, I think she's just trying to get her space, and uh, so if you guys just kind of let it go, uh, you know, I think I think it'll go away. And that's and that's what we've been doing for about six months. Uh, was just taking that taking that posture, um, but again, we never really believed there was anything, some you know, some body behind it. Mm-hmm.
1: And you and you write in the book, Mackenzie, how this separation from your family or the impending separation in your mind was really painful for you. I mean, you were, you've obviously been really close to your dad, and you were kind of struggling with that separation as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in like you said in the book, we I, I tried to make it to where. The, the reader could really understand the the conflict I was going through um, because a lot of times people think that I didn't have that conflict at all um, but it was it was really really difficult and I um, several times I would look around and think about what I was doing um, oftentimes late at night you know and um, and I, and I would start thinking you know what am I doing you know this is crazy but then there was a point where I felt like I had done so much damage, like I had already done so much that um, I, I was like, I can't go back. It's too late now. You know, I can't just stop. So,
1: so almost, so even right up until the end, when it almost happened, you still had some doubts.
2: I did, because um, in the beginning, you know, like we said, it was just harmless, and I had no reason to, I had no reason to, um, to second-guessing what i was doing I, I felt like i wasn't doing anything wrong at first slowly over time more things started happening i started drawing away more and more and i started saying you know maybe you know maybe this isn't the best um thing i should do but then i would say but we're not doing anything wrong you know i just want to talk to him that's it um and farther down the line um once i made severe decisions um i said okay you know it's too late now and i like i said i thought i loved him and so i sometimes i would second guess what i was doing but oftentimes i would say okay but we i've come this far you know I, I can't stop
1: so a lot a lot of this book centers around the this uh, pivotal meeting with fbi agents yes um it's interesting you kind of write about how it comes about but you know how did it how did you realize geez this this is something big here
2: um like something bad you mean yeah. um big and bad yeah well originally with um the fbi i didn't believe them i was not in a good place i would um i just didn't i just i was so wrapped up in and just obsessed with him that even with fbi agents sitting at the table telling me um this person has not good intentions for you stop talking to him whatever i still just didn't listen Mm -hmm. to him And um, right after the confrontation, you could say it did kind of scare me away from wanting to go over there. Um, But then everything switched to me trying to bring him over here, which we had been through before. But long story short, we didn't have a sponsor, didn't feel like um, because everything was not in the open. But now it was in the open. I said, okay, let's try to get him over here. That continued not to work, um, and and the FBI would say things. That, like the very last interview, they said, "Okay, um, right when they were going to give me my passport back and everything," um, he said, "You know what? He, he, if you tell him, if you text him, I cannot bring you here. I have, I can't do anything for you. You have to come here by yourself." He's going to just come back and say, "Okay, well then you need to come over here. We'll get married, and then we'll come back over." And um, I decided to text him that for the first time, really. I listened, and I texted him that I couldn't bring him over, and he texted me back verbatim what he told me that he was going to say. And then, then his, pr- his behavior was predictable. It, it, and then once I started seeing that, I said, okay, you know, this is obviously not um, what I need to be in. And, and there was a moment of kind of clarity. I kind of equate it to, um, you know, there's like scenes in a movie of a battlefield. You kind of look up, and you look around, and you see all the smoke and all – Um, all the damage that has that has been done and that's what I did and I and I kind of had this moment and and I looked around I saw just my my life in shambles I didn't have my friends my family nothing and I said this is not love love should not be this way and I told him that I said you know this is not love should not do this to my family should not do this to me or my friends and that was the the time that it kind of I broke it off with him Mm -hmm.
1: and and your thoughts at that time uh John were you uh I mean obviously she needed a lot of support at that point as she said well, most of her friends were gone
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh you guys were trying to get back in I mean it must have been a hard transition period if you will
3: Well I was we we were obviously very relieved that she had taken that step and it was very important that she do that on her own and um and so when she made her own decision that that she was you know that this guy did not have good intentions for her, and and that she needed to step away. That was a big that was a big victory, and so we were very thankful. First, but you know, we just gave her space. Uh, we had some counseling that was lined up, and and so we made sure that she was you know she had that kind of help, and then we just we didn't bring it up. Um, we just figured that she'd bring it up when she was ready, and it took a long time. I mean, probably six months. Uh, before she would, she asked us one question about who, uh, who were the three friends that came forward. How did the FBI get involved to begin with? I mean, she didn't understand any of that, but she didn't ask anything about it. And um, and when she finally did, um, we sat down for the first time and took her through from top to bottom what had happened. And um, but I think what was important is that uh, you know Kenzie and I had a talk after that and. Um, and I told her, you know, I think the way I think you're looking at us, being me and, me and uh, her mom, is always looking at you and always thinking back about what happened, and you know, and and we and we're resentful of that, and we're and that's always on top of my of our mind. And and what I told her is that's just not the case. I said, you know, it's uh, we're just glad you're okay, and we're moving forward, and and everything's forgiven for you, and don't worry about that, but. I did I did say, you know, you need to forgive yourself now and you need to let go and move forward. And I'm you know really proud that that's exactly what she did.
1: Whose idea was it to write the book? Almost gone.
3: <clears throat> that was mine. Uh, <laughs> but you know, all I, you know my original intention was to write the book and I was just going to I just want it for the family. I mean, we had been through, you know, really God had been good to us. We had and and when you look back, there was nothing that was that we could have predicted or engineered ourselves to put together everything that happened to save her. Um, and the courage for friends to come forward and the support we had, and uh, you know the FBI, all that just uh, it was just a a, um, a miraculous mix of of wonderful people uh, that were just put together at the right exactly the right time and exactly the right place uh, to save her and and, and we think for a larger purpose. I just wanted to capture that, and and I was just going to write it for I wanted to write it for my families. I wanted my boys that when they're my age and maybe they have kids, you know, and they're facing a hardship. I wanted them to say, well, whatever happened to Crazy Aunt Mac? How'd they get out of that, you know? <laughs> and then uh, and have something could read and understand from my personal point of view what we did and how we, you know, what we were thinking. And I wanted to write it very, very real. So they would have that to look back on. Mackenzie um, was also going to use it to uh, to speak and try to help other girls and just pay it forward. So when I um, asked Mackenzie should write it with us, you know, to, that we write it together, we really thought there would be a great opportunity for us to heal and kind of unpack it all. And, and it really was. Uh, but we were just going to self-publish it, maybe do... Fifty copies. Give you know mm-hmm. forty nine to family, and you know have one extra on the on the bookcase, and that was going to be it.
1: Yeah, it's great how you guys kind of you go back and forth chapter to chapter. We get uh, Mackenzie's version of an event, and then we get your version. It's it's really good to see the two together. Uh, when did it start to take off into something more?
3: Um, Mackenzie and Stephanie were doing some talking at a small Bible study, and uh, and we happen to have someone there that. Um, that listed the story and said, you know, I think this is something that a lot of people could benefit from. And I'd like to put you in touch with um, a literary agent and have them read it. And that's how we got involved with our, um, our literary agency, uh, Dupree Miller. And they read our, with the book was, the manuscript was done. And and they just read the full manuscript in its raw form. And she calls because, you know, you guys don't, don't self-publish anything. Uh, I, I think that we can, you know, really like to package this up and help you get this up to a higher level. Mm-hmm. And um, we went from there.
1: And Mackenzie, you you, you do some of these speaking engagements, uh, events for the book now. Um, and I think you mentioned in the book how you have girls coming up to you now all the time, mm-hmm. just yeah. mesmerized by your story. And, and mm-hmm. uh, I guess in some cases, they tell you that they've had similar situations.
2: Yeah, they have. And, um, you know, kind of kind of going back a little bit with my dad said originally I didn't want to to publish it I we um, we are talking about should we do it and uh, my parents were great and they said look if you don't want to do we'll write the whole thing and yeah, if you're you... probably
1: you're, you're embarrassed yeah, right? exactly
2: yeah. I mean and that's for the first almost like the first year I was terrified that people would find out you know I asked my dad like what if what if people find out about this I was I was scared um, and so we had said okay we're going to just write it and if you don't want to publish it then we won't. Um, and that was kind of the idea at first. I said, okay, if we do publish it, it's not going outside of the city, you know. And um, then we started speaking a little bit, and girls would come up to me and talk to me, and it was just so clear that this is helping people. And um, it's, it could even be saving people and um not in just online relationships this is also about toxic relationships unhealthy relationships um that if somebody is in one of those bad relationships they can read the story and still see similar things that i went through and hopefully give them somewhat of an idea of like how to handle that um and so yeah it just it was just very obvious that there was a great path for this and um I kind of came to this realization that when you go through something embarrassing and traumatic, you can either run from it or you can own it. And um, I chose, I I thought, I was like, okay, I've been running from it this whole time. And um, we decided, okay, we're going to own it and we're going to go forward from this and hopefully um, do something better for it, you know, help, help some people maybe.
1: How's life now? Do you have a lot of your friends back?
2: (laughs) Yes, I do. Um, I do have a lot of my friends, and um, they all came back, actually, the night that I broke it off with with Adam, the guy. um, I called them, and I said, look, I know I've just been MIA for a while. Um, I'm sorry, but can you come over? And they all came back over that night. Um, I'm a double major in college. I'm at University of Texas at Dallas, and... um, Trying to trying to maybe get into grad school at some point, point. and um, just doing speaking and just really um, really doing good, yeah. And yeah. I hope to be a counselor one day.
1: Whatever happened with the FBI investigation? Did they ever track this guy down, or there's really not much they can do?
3: Uh, not not much they can do. Um, you know, their their focus in this case was to get her safe. Uh, there there actually wasn't a crime committed uh, with McKenzie. Right. Uh, they they intervened, uh to. Uh, prevent her from making a big mistake herself and um, and we left it at that.
1: Hmm. So now you have the book. You're going to it sounds like all over the place to talk about it um, so is that the end of the story or what's next? <laughs> uh, go ahead.
2: <laughs> okay well I mean I, I mean I don't know I just we've this whole time we've felt like through for the very beginning of writing this book that it's just had a life of its own um there have been things that have lined up perfectly that would never have been able to line up if it if um there wasn't something driving this and it's just been amazing and I often say it just seems like this book has a path and a life of its own and we're just along for the ride and it's been amazing I never would have thought that we would end up in New York and doing amazing things like we're doing and um I don't know. There's, there's been some talk about certain things. I'm just not, I don't know. Wherever it, wherever it goes, you're, it's supposed to go. <laughs> you're not privy
1: to talk about it? <laughs>
2: yeah, I don't know what I'm supposed to say or not supposed to say. <laughs> Do you know who's going to play you in the movie yeah. yet? Or, uh... yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, John and Mackenzie and uh, Mom, Stephanie, thanks so much for coming in. It's a fascinating story, a great book, and uh, as you said, hopefully it, it helps a lot of people. Thanks for coming in. Yeah,
3: thank you.
0: Thank you. Now for something a little bit off the beaten path literally. The folks at Atlas Obscura have compiled some of their favorite hidden, macabre, and strange wonders of the world in an almost 500-page book. Co-author Ella Morton stopped by to talk to me about it. So for those who don't know,
4: what is Atlas Obscura? Atlas Obscura is the definitive guide to the world's hidden wonders. We are uncovering places and people around the globe that are incredible, inspiring, that expand your sense of what is possible, and we are showing them To people around the world and then you've compiled them all into a
0: book and it really covers the entire world there's what some 12,000
4: interesting little places so we on our website which is how Atlas Obscura began in 2009 we've amassed about 12 or 13,000 of these places and we've done so by contributing our own but also getting contributions from our community of users around the world and The book is a sort of greatest hits version. It's our favorites, our best of the best, our showcase of the top uh, six or seven hundred from those 12 or 13,000. So it's been hard to narrow it down, but this is what we think is the best. How did you narrow that down? Uh, A lot of arguments and a giant (laughs) spreadsheet. We tried to, because it is a global book, we tried to have a good distribution geographically, but also in terms of the kind of wonders, because... There are so many different categories. It could be anything from a a 200-foot-wide flaming hole in the Turkmenistan Desert to a museum of Victorian hair art in Independence, Missouri. So we we try to get an even mix of natural wonders and museums run by one person and just strange, macabre things. All of those sorts of things.
0: Now, is that that subject always been something you've been attracted to? Are you a big traveler? How did you come to be involved with this?
4: Well, I, Dylan and Josh, my co-authors, and I often talk about how, as children, we were very curious, nerdy people. I used to go to bed with an encyclopedia and just open it up at a random page. And that's the sort of approach that we went for in putting this book together, this idea that you could open it up. Any of the 480 pages, you will see something that is incredible and that expands your sense of the world and i have always been interested in stuff like that i had been a freelance writer before and met josh and dylan who had established alice obscura as a website and it was very much a meeting of minds and of, of common interests do you have a
0: favorite place? I know that might be a difficult <laughs> question to answer. Maybe we can narrow it down by like geographic region.
4: <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I get this question a lot. And it's, I, I think I say a different place every time because there are just so many. But one that I visited as a child and that I sort of talk about as part of the origin story of my journey toward Atlas Obscura is a place in New Zealand called Waitomo Caves. And it's this cave where you... It's kind of like a a standard set of caverns where you can go spelunking and adventuring and such things. But um, it's very dark in there. And at the end of this trip through the caves, you get put into a rowboat and rowed along this underground river. And it's very dark. And you look up onto the cave ceiling and there's what looks like an entire galaxy. And it's all these softly blue twinkling lights just everywhere you can look And you have a sort of distorted sense of um, perception and dimensions. Everything is a little bit mystical. And what those things are, each little light is a fungus gnat in its bioluminescent larval stage. So it's a very sort of magical experience. And that that i like to cite as a favorite just because it has that nostalgia factor as well cuz i went there as a kid
0: yeah and it sounds pretty cool it's amazing i recommend it <laughs> now for our listeners they don't have to go as far as new zealand to to visit some of the cool places that you guys have uncovered there's i think you have like 550 in new york city alone there's a whole <laughs> bunch
4: in new jersey yeah i mean locally there're just so many there's so many that you can walk past every single day like in soho there is the new york earth room And it's this installation, this art installation that's been there since the 1970s by an artist named Walter de Maria, who also does a lot of land art. And you buzz a buzzer, which isn't really marked. I mean, it says New York Earth Room, but there's not a giant sign or anything that says what's in there. You get buzzed in. No one says anything. It's just this mysterious door opening. You go up two flights of stairs and you smell this sort of humid, earthy smell And you walk in and it's an entire floor of three feet deep of soil and it's just sitting there quietly it's been there for decades and it gets watered once a week and it just sort of invites questions about why is there a bunch of soil in (laughs) what is probably like millions of dollars worth of real estate in New York so those sorts of things I really love like finding out about what you've been walking past every day how do you decide what makes the cut ah the the criteria are sort of nebulous there's not a a checklist but we have three elements one is that it inspires wonder and wonder has taken on a bit of a i mean it's hard to define wonder but basically if it makes your eyebrows raise that's a good sign uh it has to have an element of the hidden and it needs to be surprising so those are the sorts of three key things we look for um we also have our own individual interests like some of us like the macabre, some of us like the one-person museums that are only open on Monday from two to five. Uh, so each of us have our own predilections, but wonder-inspiring is sort of the, the catch-all term. Has it become more difficult now with the prevalence of social
0: media, with people putting all this stuff out there, or is it still easy to find
4: things that cause that kind of reaction? Well, it's interesting because when this whole project started, we thought, okay, there's going to be a point at which we run out of things. The world is incredible, but it's incredible in a finite way. But every day we are learning about more things. And it's not as though they become mundane. They are increasingly incredible. Um, The other aspect of it is that what we're doing is... There's an inherent paradox to it in that we call ourselves a showcase of the obscure. And the more that we promote it and talk about it and show people to it, the less obscure it becomes. But... um, We do find that showing these places gives them an appreciative audience, and it often allows people to connect and form community over these places and these interests.
0: Is there like a list of people of all the places that they've gone that you guys have have put out there?
4: So we have, on the website, we have a feature where you can mark either want to go or have been to one of the places in the database. And a few years ago, we got really into it and we got very competitive. We started checking off hundreds and hundreds of things, but so many get added every day. We add like six to eight new places every day. So it's hard to keep up, but yep. I guess wonders really never cease. It's true. It's very true. I need to go back through my list and just add a bunch.
0: And one of the cool things that you guys do is you put the longitude and latitude with yes. all the places. How like, was that? Just something like a little geeky thing that you decided to do? <laughs>
4: it's definitely geeky. Uh, it appeals to the, the nerd in all of us. But we also wanted to emphasize that these are real places because so many of them seem just beyond your imagination. There are these bridges in the north of India in a place called Cherrapunji where they guide the aerial roots of rubber trees across a river. So they they don't build bridges, they grow them. And looking at a picture of it, you think it's from a, a Tolkien novel or something. But we wanted to emphasize that these are real places that you can visit. In some cases, it's possibly a bit dangerous to visit, and we we note that in the book. Sometimes it may be a little bit difficult to access. Like, not everybody can go to Blood Falls in Antarctica, which is this incredible river of red water that flows down a glacier. But all of these places do exist in the real world, so we wanted to really emphasize that.
0: And you guys also organize and run trips to some of these places, don't you?
4: We do. That's a relatively new offering, because we started doing events in eight cities around the US. We've been doing that for a few years and in the last year or so we've begun offering international trips. So we'll go to places like the Galapagos Islands, we'll go to the Arctic, to the Peruvian rainforest and we like to take small groups. So it's it tends to be like-minded, appropriately nerdy about whatever subject it involves. So uh, one of our staff is very big on bird watching so he went on the trip to the Amazon and really loved it. So that that's a new venture, but it's 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 going very well.
0: Yeah, it seems very popular. I took a a look at some of them and a lot of them are already sold out.
4: Yes, the tour of um, abandoned communist monuments in Bulgaria has been particularly popular. There really is a niche there, isn't there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
0: is there anything else that you know you want people to know about Atlas Obscura?
4: Well, I think that people talk a lot about the concept of a bucket list and of having these things that they need to check off their travel list. Our book is six or 700 places, but we're not saying that you have to go to all these places in order to be considered a real adventurer. It's more about saying, here are 600 of our favorite places that we've come across. Now, this is a starting point. Now it's your turn to go out there in the world and find your own wondrous places. And please tell us about them, because we'd love to see them added to the database.
0: Yeah, really, don't stay at home on the couch. Go out and explore.
4: Go, I mean, who knows what's out there, maybe even on your block in your neighborhood. Go adventuring and see what you find. Use those vacation days. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Ella, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. For more bookish content, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.